everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with John Kay. John is a contributor at the National Post, and he also is an editor at Quillette, and he hosts the Quillette podcast. Hey, John, thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. And I'm sorry, the lighting is a little weird. There's like this big splotch of super bright light immediately behind me. Oh, uh, don't, don't worry about it. I, I only uh, release audio anyways, because I'm far too lazy to edit video. Okay. So. Well, you have to look at it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not going to blind me. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, I've been following you for a bit and you do a lot of stuff about politics in Canada. And I figured we could just start by talking about the election. Now, I'm actually a little surprised at how well the conservatives are doing and you know that the liberals are slipping like i didn't think that was going to be happening uh, yeah um <laughs> i there are so many people in canada who are paid to to be political analysts or to to write about politics or people who aren't paid but just obsessively tweet about it and we never seem to get it right. Um, I mean, sometimes pollsters get it right, but that's usually when we say pollsters get it right, it means like before the election, like immediately before the election, they'll try and predict the election result. And then the election comes and sometimes they match that up right. But in terms of like, say, six months out, three months out, even two months out, figuring out which party is going to get momentum, um, everyone's wrong. Like, you know, Trump is a great example. I, I got the, I never predicted the Trump phenomenon when he was designated as the Republican candidate. I thought like he'd lose all 50 states and then he became president. Uh, I famously among my colleagues, I met Stephen Harper when he was still head of God, what was he head of before he became conservative leader? It's like some conservative advocacy group. And I said, oh man, this, this guy's so grumpy and he's so antisocial and he'll never make it in politics. And then he became like a three-term prime minister. Uh, so it's, it's almost like sort of a random number generator. It is kind of weird and disappointing how unprepared the liberals were, despite the fact they called the election. I mean, that part was weird. Um, you know, they, they, they kind of just thought that the same stuff would work. Like they just, you know, abortion, abortion, healthcare, um, like sort of the same slogans, but like in a somewhat mechanical way. Um, but it just didn't work. Like it, it was something very lazy and witless about the liberal attacks on the conservatives. On the other hand, in the past, lazy witless attacks against the conservatives have often worked. So I, I, I can't say for certain why they're not working this time. Yeah. Okay. The lazy witless attacks. Now, I've stopped kind of referring to myself as liberal, conservative, left, right. I mean, the, the, the terms just have lost so much meaning now. Um, but one thing I've noticed is it's so easy now just to say, oh, well, that's just a right-wing talking point, especially in Canada. I mean, I see it a lot coming from Trudeau. I see it a lot coming from you know liberals and the NDP. If they want to say something or if they want to disparage, you know, anyone that'd be the conservatives or like the blocker. I don't, I don't care, but they'll say, Oh, that's, you know, that's, oh, that's Trump politics or that's American politics, or that's just, you know, right wing talking points. Yeah. And, and th that, that label has changed though. Like, uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago, you'd say U S style. So like you wouldn't say private healthcare when you were attacking your opponent, you say that's U S style healthcare. 
and, and you know, you're, you're going to open the door to U.S. style campaign finance and, uh, you know, U.S. style military unilateralism. Uh, and then that sort of ended when it was Obama who was president because it was like progressives loved Obama. Uh, I liked Obama. I thought Obama was a good president. Uh, and then Trump made everyone, including Canada, go crazy. And if I had to pick actually one reason why Trudeau has sort of lost his magic is a lot of his magic was being the anti-Trump. Uh, and, and Trump was, I mean, I don't know where you stand on Trump. I, I found Trump legitimately obnoxious and I didn't like him. And um, I was happy to see him voted out. But his presence in office helped liberals because then it was, um, he was the baseline. And, and, you know, you read the Toronto Star and Doug Ford was, was like Donald Trump and Aaron O'Toole was like Donald Trump and uh, Andrew Scheer was like Donald Trump. Uh, Jason Kenney, of course, was like Donald Trump. But now Trump's gone. So like it's it's become difficult um, to, you know, as a foil, he was amazing for progressive Canadian politicians and he's gone now. So I, I think that is hurting Trudeau because um, he doesn't have that. I don't know. I OK, the, the whole Trump thing. I mean, frankly, I, the last two elections in the States. I said the same thing as I said in the last Canadian election. I was like, if I was in the States, I'd vote down ticket. In the last Canadian election, I spoiled my ballot. I mean, I, I literally wrote on my ballot, like, give me someone worthwhile voting for. Because there's, like, there's no one worth voting for as far as I was concerned. Um, but yeah, I mean, Trump, my whole thing with him was, I don't, I, he was unstable. I don't think he knew from second to second what he was going to do. Right. And like, you know, that I was my biggest thing with him. I mean, all the other stuff is abrasiveness, is tweeting, whatever, you know, it's the instability that I was like, I, I, there's no way I could have voted for that guy. Um, yeah. And, and especially when <laughs> there's a guy who's supposed to be in control of the nuclear codes, um, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, but, and, and you don't, and you do not get the sense that Aaron O'Toole has that aspect of a personality, right? Like Aaron O'Toole <laughs> is, I mean, some conservatives have complained that he's not, um, you know, populist enough or angry enough or uh, Trump-like enough because I don't think that's his personality. I don't think he is those things. So, um, well, I mean, what, see, the larger issue is I find a lot of people just, they don't vote the, their angels, they vote their villains. So I just got a long message from a family me member about how how he was going to vote for, um, for the liberals because that was the best way to defeat the conservatives. And I get messages from other people who are more conservative who say, well, we have to vote conservative because that's the best way to, to be Trudeau because like they see Trudeau as a villain figure. Um, they have like Trudeau derangement syndrome. And then, you know, my, my left-wing friends have conservative derangement syndrome. Like it's, there's, there's an unsettling number of people who are mostly focused on just keeping who, the guy they regard as sort of like the demon out of office. Uh, and sometimes they only have a very vague understanding of the platform of the party they're voting for. They're just voting for that party because they see it as the best way to, to keep the bad guy out of office as they see it. He, now, look at the, the American politics thing. Like, is this, because I mean, it's, it's slowly, I've seen it slowly happen in Canada. Okay, I started voting in the late eighties and I've slowly seen it start happening where it was more emphasis on the leader than it was on your local, you know, local MP. Right. And I mean, should Canadians go back to that? Like focus on your local MP and hold them to account and vote for the person that you think will best represent you? So 
Uh, everyone says that, um, and and it's it's a nice thing to think and say because technically speaking, in our parliamentary system, you're not voting for a prime ministerial candidate; you're voting mm -hmm. for an MP, and then you know that MP's party affiliation arithmetically across the country that dictates who becomes prime minister because it's the leader of the party who gets the most seats. And I think that made more sense like 30 or 40 years ago when individual MPs maybe had a little bit more power. And, but now, um, and it certainly makes more sense in the United States where you often have Republicans and Democrats breaking party lines. But in Canada, party discipline at the parliamentary level is just like so staunch that no matter who you're voting for at the local riding level, except in extraordinary circumstances, that person's party affiliation pretty much is going to dictate how they're going to vote on pretty much every issue because er almost every vote is completely whipped. You, know, you, get a, um, you, you either get votes of confidence where you have to vote with your party or they're going to get voted out of office, or you get non votes that aren't necessarily confidence votes and theoretically you're able to, to vote your conscience but realistically, if you don't vote the way your party leader wants you to vote, you know, you're not going to get committee assignments and you're going to be relegated to the backbench and you're not going to be seen as a team player and you're not going to get party supported election time and all that stuff. So we have such a whip system that uh, you could have, you know, in, in Montreal, where I grew up in TMR, you know, Erwin Kotler, this blue chip uh, McGill intellectual world renowned leader in, um, in, uh, genocide studies and the study of anti-Semitism and stuff like that. And, and actually he was minister of justice for a period. Um, and, you know, people would vote for him. You know, it happened to be a very red riding, but people would vote for him in part because like he's a superstar as a candidate. Um, and in that case, like he became a cabinet minister. But these days, I don't think it matters if, if a guy's a superstar and he, you know, with rare exceptions where he gets a prominent cabinet post, it doesn't matter if you're voting for a superstar or you're voting for like a doorstop. 99% of the time, that person is going to vote their party. So I, I, so I actually don't see the point in, in, in voting on the basis of the quality of individual MP. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, that kind of sucks. I mean, like it's like right now, my whole, my, my takeaway is like, I, I think the best, possible outcome in this election it'd be a minority conservative government i don't want any one of those parties to have a majority right now but okay the, the whole liberal thing like to get them out whatever my i don't want c10 and i don't want c uh what is it uh c36 all right they're basically two the, the twin censorship bills yeah, basically. yeah like I, I want those gone and the NDP, the Liberals, as far as I could tell, the Greens, and I, I guess the Bloc was supporting them as well. Like they are all behind; they were all going to go vote for that. So I mean, like that's my, I got my. That's my. If it comes down to it, free speech is about my only, like fundamentalist issue. <laughs> like that's the only thing I'll be fundamentalist about. And yeah, you know, yeah. And, and those are I, those I, are the issues that I, I remember when I was deciding who to vote for. Those are basically the issues that, when I saw them coming down the pipe. I just, I, I, it pushed me in the direction of the conservatives for two reasons. One, the actual substance of this legislation, because like you, I prioritize free speech. So that was one thing, is that I don't want these things becoming law. Mm -hmm. Putting aside the issue of whether liberals are actually serious about turning these things into law, or they're just using them as, as wedge issues. But the second issue was, 
you can tell a lot about a party by the sort of flurry of legislation it introduces in the months before an election when things are getting desperate and it's trying to rally its troops and it's being maybe disingenuous. Um, like to me, that's when maybe a party shows its true colors. And by the way, you saw this on the conservative side of the spectrum, like in you know Harper's last term, he started introducing some pretty creepy stuff um, like, you know, barbaric practices, hotlines and stuff like that, yeah. which he wouldn't have done that in his previous terms. But again, sometimes parties show their, their darker and, and unflattering side late in their tenure when they're trying to, when they're getting desperate. And so even if C10 and C36, I think that's what the numbers are, even if they don't become law, I just found it very unsettling and politically unattractive that that's the kind of stuff they were introducing as wedge issues. Yeah, but I mean, okay, with those two, it was in their platform. The NDP and the Liberals had it specifically in their platform that they wanted to co combat on light hate speech in the last election. So, yeah, fair well, enough. And when when they when they put in those laws, I'm like, well, you know, they told you they were going to do it, and they're doing it. So that's, you know, I, I just I couldn't vote for them for that reason. But I mean, you know, I have my issues with the Conservatives, but that's my whole point. Like, if I have issues with the Conservatives, or if I have issues with any party. I'm going to vote for the party that does not going to stifle my speech. You know, and so at least if whatever issues I have with the conservatives, I can at least speak about it and be as abrasive as I want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think, and C10, if I'm getting it right, um, bringing back section 13 of the Canadian human rights act, which I think, I think that was C10 um, where private litigants can come forward and uh, take people to task for speech they deem offensive and then collect a bounty on that basis, which again, that was the law of the land under the old section 13. They got rid of it because well, as I was actually one guy in particular who was uh, just, it's kind of was his hobby. He would just go after people and try and collect money under that provision. That to me is really worrying. Uh, and they got rid of that for a reason. And the fact the liberals want to bring it back, um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't speak well to their approach to free speech. Yeah, yeah, but um, actually, I think it's C thirty six, C ten was the one about the Canadian content online and all that. Like they were going to prioritize. Right, right, and they had mm. a lot of other stuff in there. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, but um, now the like again the, the like I said, free speech is my hobby horse. So I'm looking at these people and I'm looking at everything Trudeau's done since he's got in, I mean, he's like M103. I know that was only a motion. Oh, that was the Islamophobia thing. Yeah. And, you know, everything he's done, it's, it's one way or another to like control speech. And I just like, I, you know, well, it's like I a want fetish. them out. <laughs> it's like a fetish. Yeah. No, but, uh, okay. Sorry. I, I got to harp on this, but he, he said it. I don't know how he said it at least twice publicly now where he he misquoted oliver wendell holmes and said oh well you can't yell fire in a in a crowded theater and i mean that's not what holmes said holmes says you cannot falsely yell fire in a crowded theater so right. I mean, falsely is important <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and I, like if you know anything about that if you actually look into it a year later he he, he kind of recanted it he said i wish i hadn't said that and he, like you know like all that stuff was taken out of that american context. legal you know, like when it comes down to free speech, like all that was, you know, if you're going to quote the guy, at least look at what he did. Like he said, no, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And so, well, the thing that bothered me about M103 is that it was, it was specific 
Well, Islamophobia, I think there, there are some Islamophobes and it can be a real thing, although not every criticism of Islam is Islamophobia, obviously. But, you know, the conservatives played that game too because, I don't know if you remember, but at one point they were trying to make suicide bombings um, like a special crime under the criminal code. And it was plainly directed toward, I mean, at the time, suicide bombings were very closely associated with like Al-Qaeda and Hamas and stuff like that. Um, and obviously, you know, no one supports suicide bombing. It's, it's a hor horrifying form of murdering people. But like, we already have crimes against terrorism and murder. Like you didn't need a crime, you didn't need a new law against suicide attacks. It was the only reason you would want to do that is the same reason that the liberals put in M103s. They're trying to curry favor with one particular group, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't like laws that, that play favorites uh, with ethnopolitics, like even in a purportedly supportive or positive way. It's just, it, it's, it's anti-liberal to use your legislative power to, um, to be like ethnically or religiously specific uh, in the way you, you protect your citizens. So that, that's what bothered me about M103. Yeah, I mean, okay, like, first of all, Islamophobia, I, I think the whole term is wrong. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, anti-Muslim bigotry, that's fine. But I mean, phobic of an ideology, like that's, like the whole concept of it just bugs me. Like it's- Well, the way it's used, it's used too broadly. Uh, yeah, or maybe anti-Muslim bigotry. I mean, there's people who are bigoted against all sorts of people, you know, this is anti-Semitism against Jews and Islamophobia. If you know, if, if you don't like the term, that's, that's fine. But, but it is a real thing. Like just, you know, the Muslims in, in, in Canada, and especially after 9-11, you know, going to the airport, if you were Muslim, could be, a, from what I understand, like a, a really a huge ordeal. I had a friend, for, she's, she's from India, well, her family's from India, and she couldn't fly because her name was so similar, oddly, to the name of a male terrorist. And so she, like, she had to get to the airport like three hours. It wasn't, I wouldn't say it was Islamophobia per se, like it was just, it was a computer glitch. But um, I mean, to her, Islamophobia felt pretty real. Okay, but that's okay. Like, the, I'm not saying, that's why I said anti-Muslim bigotry. I, I don't, the, the term Islamophobia muddies it up and it creates too much thing. But okay, I'll give you, a, a, talking about travel and stuff like that, so... Um, I spent close to 13 years working overseas. So I was working in war zones and I uh, worked in Haiti after the earthquake. So I had a passport with visa stamps from uh, Kosovo, Afghanistan, <laughs> Bosnia. Like, like, okay. Right. Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. At one point my passport was issued in Islamabad because it was expiring while oh, I was boy. in Kabul. Yeah. So that, okay. that, that could even, couldn't even be scanned electronically. I had all these things in it. I've got an Arab name. Okay. So I mean like, <laughs> Yo, so yeah, it says you had an Arab name and you had been to Kosovo, uh, Afghanistan. Wow, that's like okay. uh, I, that was for work. I mean, like then there was all the places I visited. You know, so it was like all over Southeast Asia, Turkey. Uh, I mean, like I, I could come on, but yeah. So it was. If I'm stopped, I get it. I understand. Like they look at my passport and it's you know like there's all kinds of bells and whistles, but whatever. Like, like I said, I was working with military and stuff, so I had ID and I was like, here, this is what I was doing, and that that was okay. But right, okay. I mean, going through the states though, there was times where I was like questioned for about forty five minutes, just you know, all my ID and everything, and it was just the same questions over and over again. So, but as far as okay, look, the, you know, don't get me wrong, like there's a lot of there's attacks on Muslims. I'm not you know going to discount it, but. Anti-Semitism is still the number one issue 
when you look at hate crime statistics. You know, and then it was, then I believe it was uh, against black uh, black Canadians, and then it was, you know, Islam was like three or four, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say like you know it's in the top five. It's still not good, but it would seem like he would. It was always that to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah, and so I've learned to be very cynical about this kind of stuff because, uh, as you may know, I'm. I'm not religiously observant, but I'm of, of Jewish heritage. And, um, you know, when I was at the National Post, every year, B'nai B'rith, which is Jewish advocacy group, would come out with this report on anti-Semitism, right? And somehow every year anti-Semitism was going up, even though as a journalist and just as a citizen, by my observation, like during my lifetime, anti-Semitism has gone down. Like I... Um, even when I started the National Post in the late 90s, I routinely got anti-Semitic email whenever I would write about the Middle East, something like that. And that kind of just stopped over the course of 10 or 15 years and during my tenure at the Post. And so I, when I had this the Jewish advocacy organization just claiming that anti-Semitism is this huge pandemic problem, like Jews are under siege. And I mean, yeah, anti-Semitism does happen, but I, it was completely at variance with my experience in Canada. I, and... I think one of the reasons that you get a lot of reporting of anti-Semitic um, alleged hate crimes and acts of hate or abuse or something is the Jewish community, to its credit, uh, has created a very effective system of advocacy. There's a lot of advocacy organizations. Um, there's a lot of you know community hubs and places like Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa and Vancouver. And so when, when anything happens, like there's graffiti or anything like that, they have this... Um, organizational machine that kicks into gear to make sure that it is reported to the correct authorities. And um, I think there's, 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 there's certainly other communities in Canada that have learned from this and have maybe modeled some of their advocacy on, on that. And it's, it's, it's not a bad thing, but it means that it has a, a statistically overrepresentative effect compared to other groups of maybe newer arrived Canadians who don't have that organizational structure. Um, you know, think of like Filipino Canadians or, um, you know, Tamils um, uh, who like just their community activism, their, their, their community groups just haven't reached the same level of sophistication. And so it doesn't surprise me that statistically certain groups are overrepresented compared to others because, um, you know, they, they, they have the people and activists and institutions within their community that are like very much primed to report any allegation along those lines. Like B'nai B'rith, that's just kind of its bread and butter. It's, um, you know, there's a story someone told me they, there was like 30 anti-Semitic stickers that were placed in a public bathroom at a school in Ottawa and B'nai B'rith recorded it as, um, as, as 30 hate crimes. So, you know, okay. it's, uh, you know yeah. so you get, you get stuff like that. Yeah. So okay. You, like I, I'm going, I was going by, you know, the stats Canada, like the police. Well, you're right. Yeah. According to the statistics, yeah. you're absolutely right. I just, those statistics only yeah. report what people report. And so stats can, it's only as accurate as the incoming, yeah. they don't know what mm -hmm. they don't know. So like, for instance, in the Tamil community, if the stuff happening, you know, I know some Tamils, I know some Filipinos here in Toronto. It's like, they're just more inclined to shrug it off because most of them they've arrived more recently. There's just less of this institutional support structure to like, Oh, this happened to you. Do you saw it? Okay. Report that report that like it's, it's they're at a different yeah. stage of, uh, of organization.
Well, I mean, I, I also wonder if it's something like, um, okay, my family immigrated from India uh, and still to this day, and it's not like my mother's mother's ever had any experience with the police, but like the, and this is, this is coming from like the police in India, the police in Pakistan where she grew up yeah. and those people are violent and they'll hit you. Like they'll, you know, they'll smack someone with their, with their cane at, at a, you know, drop of a hat and they'll, they'll get violent. So she's, she fears the police. So I'm wondering if it's something of that as well. Like it's just kind of a, a fear of the authority and, and I'm not, I'm not putting this on systemic racism or anything, any, anything like that. I'm just saying like, it's, you know, where they come from, the police and the authority are a lot rougher than they are here. Yeah. And it, and it works both ways. Cause I, so I have some friends who are, uh, who are recently arrived immigrants and, and talking to their family members, it's interesting because if, if they, if they find out that you're say a lawyer or a journalist or like a local politician or something, they'll, <laughs> they'll come to you like with just these legal issues, like, um, oh, I, you know, I, I need this document or I'm trying to get this guy into the country or, um, uh, you know, I'm in trouble for not making car payments. Do you think you could clear this up for me? Like they kind of just assume that if you're a privileged person, like you can just make a phone call and make problems go away because I get the sense. I mean, there are countries in the world where that happens, right? Like, if you are a privileged person, you can kind of just make a phone call to a cousin who works at the justice ministry or okay. in, uh, and Canada yeah. isn't that kind of country. Like, so it's, it's interesting. Uh, yes and no. Like, like in, well, I can speak about India or I can speak about the city where my family is. Um, that used to be a lot more, but with the rise of the middle class in India, like it's getting less. Right. So there's less fixing that you can do or there's a power shift going on. I don't know, but like it's, it, there's, it's not as much, but you can still bribe your way out of a lot of things. But, but, but you're right that once you have an empowered middle class with, especially with access to technology and social media, they don't put up with that. Um, whereas if you have like an old fashioned agrarian, you know, like Russia in the 19th century, sort of peasant society where, you know, you have a small group of people with power and 99% of people who don't, it's much easier to have like a place where the 19th century equivalent of a phone call can, uh, can go a long way. Right. But I mean, okay. India still has, like, I, I say it's, it's a more honest form of corruption. Like my brother needed to get like, there had, they were doing some work on the water and the water main in front of his house. And it was the city doing this, but he had to bribe like three different departments to make sure that he kept having water at his house. And so like that's factored into everything. There's, like everyone knows you're gonna have to bribe someone at some point or other and like low level functionaries. And it's, you know, like I said, it, it's factored in as like the cost of doing business and it's just, it's done. So like I said, it's, it's corruption, but it's like upfront and honest about it. Yeah. Sometimes when I read newspaper accounts and you hear about like people storming a courthouse or something like that, it's sometimes in the story, it's like, the guy bribed the judge, but he, the judge still didn't rule in his favor and the guy got really angry. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, this is how these things worked in most parts of the world until relatively recently in our history, um, in human history. So it's, it's not surprising that, that things work that way. Um, Canada is, is shockingly uncorrupt. Um, it's, it's one of the things I like about it. Um, you know, like, if you try, if, if a police officer pulls you over for a speeding ticket in Canada and you try and like give them a hundred dollar bill to get out of it, which 
was not an uncommon thing to do, like in parts of the United States as recently as like the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, uh, I, I used to, and when I was a kid, I, I would still hear about occasionally stories of people doing stuff. Like if you tried that with a Canadian police officer, he'd laugh at you um, or he'd arrest you or one of those two. Uh, but it's, it's, again, it's one of the endearing things about Canada. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, you know, we started talking about politics, but people might just see you know, like, all the all the corruption like yeah, they could throw the wee scandal in your face and say well you know, what about that uh yeah i mean that's the thing it's it's sort of corruption in plain sight uh <laughs> um like the, the wee scandal there was always like uh, the people my friends and family know this but i always thought the the, the that wee thing was was creepy um there was always just something weird and cultish about it uh, and it kind of made sense that the liberals were partnered with them in some way because they're the liberals brand like McKenna and Trudeau, like the sort of young rah-rah thing. Like it made kind of sense, but again, that happened in plain sight. Most of it, like this, you know, that was, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of the most shocking kinds of, of, of waste, including cult cultural subsidies in Canada are completely above board. They're not, they're not crimes because they're out in the open. They're listed as budget items. So, you know, that arguably does a lot more harm than the stuff that's actually criminal. Okay, look, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I'm going to circle back to, like, we were to, like I had mentioned American politics. Now, I find it funny that Trudeau throws that around, yet he's basically got an all-but-name a ministry of critical race theory, you know, the ministry of diversity, inclusion, and youth. Um, I mean, that's American Jewish jurisprudence. I mean, it, it came out of uh, like legal scholarship from Harvard. Yeah. yeah. Um, the thing about Trudeau is, I mean, that ministry is basically like, might as well be called the ministry of whatever is hot on Twitter right now. Hmm. And as soon as that stuff goes out of fashion, which in some ways it already is, um, that'll be it. Like it'll be dumps. Um, Trudeau is a very modern prime minister in some ways in that he, he, he's the first prime minister Canada's ever had, who is a true creature of social media, who realizes that attention spans have gotten down. Um, political culture has regressed to like a very youthful kind of state video is very big in people's lives. You, you see Jagmeet Singh doing a lot of TikTok stuff. Um, and, and we're seeing it now, like the liberals just introduced this very substantive policy platform thing, but people aren't paying that much attention to it. Instead, they're talking about some liberal MP who's been accused of sexual harassment, and that's dominating the news because that's kind of like a hashtag me too thing. Mm -hmm. um, so for the liberals, it's kind of a live by the sword, die by the sword thing, right? Because they, me too, and all those so social justice movements were a big part of their their brand and now the shoes on the other foot and they're like look away avert your eyes you know let's let's talk about <laughs> this 800 page policy we have it's um it's it's one of the reasons trudeau isn't doing well is because on so many issues you can read his own words back to him um you know he planted how many trees did he promise to plant like you know 800 zillion trees or whatever and <laughs> uh like the true number was like seven or something yeah. Um, Me Too stuff, there's, you know, the anti-racism stuff, there's the, the blackface. That was the last election cycle. 
Um, it's, it's part of the problem, by the way, of being an incumbent is all of the aspirational, idealistic stuff that you got elected on now can be read back to you and it's completely tarnished because you've been in power and you know snc lavalin like it's and that stuff takes its toll it's hard to play sort of the squeaky clean boy wonder when you've played the grubby business of canadian politics for for two two terms right yeah the the throwing stuff back in his face i was joking around yesterday like he made those comments in sudbury about you know people who are anti-vaxxers and um, (laughs) and then he was talking about okay you know the government i mean i think he was hinting at the government should be able to take the kids away and i was like well if you look at the the demographics i mean large population large percentage of the black population large percentage of the first nations population are vax vaccine hesitant i'm like so you're talking about government taking away children like right after the residents you know like the (laughs) the, the Um, school scan presumably he meant no no, no, i I didn't mean those people i meant like bad conservative white people yeah, um, but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but i mean like no but he was hinting at that i'm like well he's being a little racist now isn't he like, it's, yeah so you know what it's uh I, I actually didn't think about it that at the time um but it's true i mean and if you talk like there's a prominent black activist here in toronto her last name is maynard or mayno or something like that and she just wrote a, a whole book i think that was her yeah or she's writing a whole book about the racistness of the uh, of child services um, because they, you know, a lot of the kids, they, they take away um, for all sorts of reasons, um, you know, socioeconomic reasons end up being black or indigenous. Like, so, um, but I didn't, I didn't put two and two together. I think in, in Trudeau's formulation, it's like, if you're an anti-vaxxer, it means you're like a white guy who looks like a Trump supporter. Um, uh but you're right. There's all kinds of people who are vaccine hesitant. In fact, there was a poll that was done like a month ago, and they found that the average, the average vaccine hesitant person in Canada was a 43 year old female liberal voter. Did you see that? It was uh, nope. published in I think in McLean's. Uh, let me see if I can find. Even as we're speaking, let me see if I can find it. Um, and it was really interesting. They asked them all sorts of questions. Like it basically came down to distrust, which, and it kind of made sense that it would be like, yeah, here we go. Oh, I said 43 is 42. Yeah. So the headline is a McLean's article, August 11th. Typical vaccine hesitant person is a 42 year old Ontario woman who votes liberal, according to Abacus polling. And it's not that crazy when you think that until, well, not even until recently, even now, the sort of people who talk about health food and natural organic stuff and, and, and who are suspicious of big pharma, like Pfizer is, among other things, a huge pharmaceutical company. And until 15 minutes ago, the people who were most suspicious of big pharma weren't conservatives. It was, it was progressives, you know, people who buying $8 bottles of organic milk at Whole Foods and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, not, you know, Yahoo's like me eating a Burger King. So it was... Um, it wasn't super surprising to find out that there's a lot of progressives who are vaccine hesitant. The difference is those vaccine hesitant progressives tend to be like more sort of, as I said, sort of upper middle class whole foods types. They're not the kind of people who are going to go out and like scream at Trudeau at a campaign stop because like, that's, you know, that's not part of their brand. Um, 
So the people you're seeing who are protesting Trudeau are kind of like maybe the more working class, non-Whole Foods, maybe more conservative populist uh, branch of the vaccine hesitant movement. Okay. Well, like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you. and Yeah. So uh, I, I tweet at John K, J-O-N-K-A-Y. Uh, and uh, I write articles for Quillette. That's, I tell people it's like Gillette, but with Q-U instead of G. And uh, about once or twice a month, I write articles for the National Post. Uh, I wrote one yesterday about <laughs> David Fisman, which we didn't even get to talk about. This is the uh, famous Ontario doctor who decided that uh, Aaron O'Toole is sending secret coded messages to uh, white power terrorists because the conservative <laughs> campaign slogan is 14 words. And Oh, I saw that. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And any, any sentence that's 14 words uh, means you're, you're a fan of Hitler. Like it was, and I'm not actually exaggerating how crazy this stuff was. Um, anyway, so I wrote a little bit about that in that column. Uh, and then my podcast is just Google Quillette podcast and it's on Spotify and iTunes and uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, including wherever you're listening to this podcast. Well, great. Thank you very much. It was good talking to you, John. Yeah, that was good. And so now you're not just a, uh, a face and a handsome picture on Twitter. Well, I don't know if I've ever a handsome picture, but thanks. Both of us. <laughs> right. Both of us. <laughs> okay, talk soon. <laughs> thanks. And thanks, everyone, for listening.